Hello, this is Opera Unbound, a podcast that breaks the barriers between opera singers and the audience. We will cover the process, challenges, stereotypes, and inspirations associated with opera. If you like the content that we're putting out and you'd love to see more, make sure you subscribe to our channel as well as share it with all your friends. Welcome back. This is our season finale. Dun, dun, dun. We're going to be talking about the most controversial topic in our field. <laughs> opera is dying. In my opinion, if it's dying, it's dying the most operatic death it can. So long, so drawn out. Seriously, this thing's been reading Pagliaccio forever. Like, probably a, uh, a century or more. It's a long, painful death. Yeah. Definitely. So we're going to talk about this subject in, in kind of three areas. We're going to talk about the statistics and everything involved with that. We're going to talk about a definition of dying and kind of an offshoot of that is going to be opera and popular culture, which is obviously how most people think of whether an art form is relevant or not. Mm -hmm. We're going to kick it off talking about some stats. And I did a lot of statistical uh, Googling. <laughs> <laughs> you gave it a goog and you found some stuff out. <laughs> yeah. Let's kind of talk about the number of performances of opera in the world. Obviously, we didn't use the 2019-2020 season. I think you know why. <laughs> So we're using 2018-19 season. There were 25,000 performances. Um, and if you look back in, in history, that's a pretty steady number for the last 10 years at least. And then attendance to those performances. In the United States in 2019, 2.8 million people attended an opera. Which in itself, okay, 2.8 million, that's a lot of people. When you compare that to our population of adults, there's around, in 2019, there were around 200, 220 million adults in the U.S. So that's only uh, slightly over a percentage of the population physically going to the opera. I wanted to compare this to a couple different things. I wanted to compare it to Germany. Germany has the most operas performed out of any country in the world they make up about a third of the performances. So out of those 25,000 performances in 2018-19, they accounted for 8.7 of them, 8.7 thousand of them. Okay. Whereas the U.S., it's only about 2 to 2.5K. Mm. Germany's just, they, they love opera. <laughs> Germany is kind of mecca. Yeah, especially when you think of, not only the population differences, but the the mm -hmm. uh, the size of the country versus ours. I mean, it's just right. crazy. It's there's like opera all the time. Germany is about the size of Minnesota, and nearly every mid-sized German city has an opera house. Germany is home to one of every seven of the world's opera houses. So, I mean, they really just have a ton. Mm -hmm. And and going back to what I was talking about, the attendance. So in 2018-19, 4 million people in Germany attended the opera. Now, I think when you look at both of these statistics, there are going to be some people who are traveling from outside those countries. I think it's going to be a small percentage but i think we should at least you know mention yeah, that's that. fair 
The population of Germany is around 87 million. So 4 million people attending the opera there is almost 4.5% of their population. Mm -hmm. And that data, how many people attend the operas, the 2.8 million, that comes from Opera America's report on the field at a glance from 2019. And then the numbers from Germany come from an article from Christian Science Monitor. Uh, they were talking about how people are making a living during the pandemic. Lucky for us, they use some statistics. Yeah. In case we were wondering, now we know. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also looked at the National Endowment for the Arts. They do studies from time to time, too. Back in 1992, they did a study about, you know, attendance of theater and arts and found some statistics in there about opera specifically. 6.1 million people attended the opera in 1992. So we have nearly half the amount of people attending the opera over a 30-year period. So when you're looking at the statistics of opera in live performance, it doesn't look great. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> but when you look at it consumed via media, CDs, movies, uh, live streams, when we talk about in today's terms, the numbers are better. So from that same NEA study in 1992, they say a total of 18.1% of the population or 33.6 million adults watched or listened to opera on the media. That's a huge difference. Oh, totally. That's like, that's five, that's five times as many people. Now, I had to go digging <laughs> to find a close enough year that I could find data on people listening to opera. And unfortunately, I couldn't find one that didn't also include classical music. So this is for both classical music and opera, which there is a fair amount of overlap when it comes to the, the, the audience members. A lot of audience members who go to operas also go to classical music events, symphonies, stuff mm -hmm. like that. That number from 2017, and that's also from National Endowment for the Arts study, is... 35.2 million or about 20% of the population. So it actually grew. Oh, yeah. And I mean, even if we say half of those people only go to opera, which I I would be suspect that it's only half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That still is a massive difference from the, the 92 study. And yeah, well, and as we discussed um, on the last podcast we did together um, about accessibility and how we, we really think that live streaming is going to bring new audience members, maybe not through the doors, but it's going to bring it into their homes. I mean, radio changed people's lives when, when that became something that everybody could have in their home and the entertainment available to them. Same thing with the television set. And now that companies are open to live streaming, they're, they're operas i think that they're gonna see a greater amount of revenue from that one but also community engagement yeah I because there's a, uh, there are people who who live in areas where there isn't an opera house that is convenient for them to go to or um, like we talked about before it may not be accessible to them for whatever disability they might have yeah, I completely agree. I think that it that it is the future and with the as we get internet more easily available to everybody in our country and really throughout the world, but we're just talking the United States right now, throughout our entire country, not just in 
you know, major metropolitan areas and suburbs and stuff like that. It's going to really revolutionize that whole thing. I, as you were talking, Rachel, I was just sitting there thinking, and I'm also hoping that I have the story correct, but I'm pretty sure I do. Who's to say that we won't, through this process of having opera be live streamed and, and on YouTube, that we won't find more um, more stories like Kristen Chenoweth. Now, I know she's really more of a musical theater person, but she learned how to sing opera, and she came from a small town mm-hmm. in, in Oklahoma. Right. So, and she became one of the biggest one of the biggest singers really in the performing arts in the last century. And so this will help inspire not only people that just like the art form itself, but that's how I think we're going to get more people to come into the art form to be actual performers is through that, which then, as we both know, the more you get into it yourself, the a lot easier it is to help spread that joy to other people. So yeah, um, it's going to be, it's going to be really good for everybody, honestly, even if, the ticket sales at the door are less. I mean, we, we talked mm-hmm. about it jokingly a couple of days ago where we need to find a way to be a better gateway drug for people. <laughs> yeah. And I think that live streaming and doing things online in creative ways is going to get us there. Uh, Absolutely. Even if our in-person stuff, quote unquote, suffers a little bit in the short term. Yeah, and I, and I want to come back to that point later. I want to kind of finish up what we're talking about with statistics, but in this Opera America field at a glance uh, report, they do talk about the different ways that companies innovated when it came to how they programmed their seasons because of uh, the pandemic. So I, I want to come back to that, but okay. uh, I want to finish talking about the statistics real quick. All right, sounds good. The last statistic I wanted wanted to compare to was something that is more a part of quote unquote popular culture, and that is musicals. According to epictheaterensemble.org slash the a survey conducted by Nielsen Scarborough, a total of 47 million Americans attended a live theater event of some sort, whether that's musicals, concerts, opera, that. Out of that number, 13 million people went to a Broadway play or musical. Mm-hmm. 13 million. That is like, let's see, we just round up. It's four times as many people uh, that went to an opera, mm-hmm. which actually isn't as large as a number as I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be a much bigger number. Yeah, I would agree, especially because if you talk to non-opera people or people who are just yeah out, out in the world, they would assume that musical theater is far more popular than that because you see... I mean, every high school, now I know there's reasons why high schoolers don't do opera because the voice isn't even remotely mature enough to do it. But mm-hmm. like, that's where more people get exposed to that art form. So you would think it would be bigger than it actually is. Yeah. When you look at the statistics, it doesn't look great for opera as a as an on-living art form. And we've talked about how we really think it comes down to how you are engaging with the community that you are presenting this art form in. If you cannot speak to what these people find important or interesting, entertaining, of course they're not going to come. And also having to break down those stupid barriers and ideas about opera, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I get it. My own mom, like every time my mom comes to watch me at the opera, she was always like, what do I wear? And I'm like, just wear clothing. 
No one cares. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Just put clothes on. I don't care if you come in a three-piece suit or a pair of overalls and some mud shoes. It's whatever, you know? Yeah. I'm just glad you're in a seat. Exactly, because the, the level of or lack thereof of clothing is not going to impede the message that is being presented in front of you. It will not block your ears and your other senses, at least I don't think, anatomically or scientifically speaking, that it will block your experience by wearing, I don't know, Crocs and, yeah. and socks I think what people fear is that they'll get the side eye or, you know, something like that. It might happen, but it also might happen if you're just out in public. I don't think the instances of it are that much higher. I mean, I go, when I go to the opera, I go in jeans. I don't, I don't particularly dress up. Yeah. I have, but I don't always. Yeah. I think it's one of those things, uh, People are going to judge you no matter what you do in today's society. So you just got to be you. Yep. Unless you're an asshole. Then uh, <laughs> you might want to refrain on that one. But everything else, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older now. Not that I'm super old, but I just care a lot less. Yeah. Because there's really nothing you can do with certain people. They're going to do whatever. Uh, do you have any stats that you found in your research that you want to share? Or... Yeah, well, I'm looking at that same report, the uh, 2019 Phil right. report. And one mm-hmm. thing that we need to keep in mind that they mentioned in this is out of all the operas that were performed in the 2018-19 season that they did in all their different surveys, because they didn't, I don't think they actually looked at every single company because not every company belongs to opera america exactly they only look at opera america members so yeah their their numbers won't include every company so i i mean i think that there's probably uh probably something like 20 percent of opera companies don't belong to opera america and they're gonna be probably the the smaller companies yeah i think that's pretty a pretty fair uh guess uh 29 percent of all of them were Written after 1970. Of the operas that they performed? Yeah, in, in the eighteen nineteen season. I thought that it was going to be lower than that. So that's almost a third, right? Yeah, that's uh, great. So that's really good. Now, granted, some of them that were in the top five, one of them I don't really consider a an opera, which is West Side Story. It's a great show. Don't get me wrong. Mm. I don't really consider it an opera, but that's okay. That's uh, Bernstein, but, right? Yeah, it's Bernstein, yeah. yeah the Bernstein's, that's... Uh... Same with Candide. Yeah. Candide is no, number four. Candide is technically considered an opera, but it's done by musical theater companies more than it's done by opera companies. So that becomes like a, a, a connotation versus a, a definition, like a dictionary definition. Okay, fair enough. For those of you who are wondering, the top five... Well, let's first do this. This is not going to be that surprising to people. The top five most performed works just out of everything. Number one, Boheme, Traviata, mm-hmm. Carmen, Barbara Seville, and Butterfly. Okay, that's really not that shocking. That's yeah. pretty standard almost every single year. Now, mm-hmm. the top five most produced in North American works 
We're number one, Three Decembers, which is Jay Keggy. Mm. Uh, number two, we've talked about it a lot on this show. We might even talk about it again in this one, As One, mm-hmm. which is the Laura Kaminsky transgender opera. Mm-hmm. Again, West Side Story, Candide. And then number five, the one I wish I have seen by now, but I have not, Silent Night. Oh, so, Silent Night's um, so good. Yeah, I really that's on my list. Uh, so that's just in case people are wondering or taking score at home. That's it. Now, the other thing that I found interesting in this report, and it goes to uh, a point that we've made multiple times on this podcast, is that the future is probably not going to change a whole lot. Like the changes that we need to happen are not going to come from these behemoth companies. Nope. It's going to come from the smaller companies getting people in. And one thing that I found interesting is if your company, according to the ones that they looked at, has a budget of a million dollars or less, you get more bang for your buck in terms of the development productivity is the dollars raised from contributions per dollar spent on fundraising. And what's interesting about this is though they had two categories, essentially they had a 250,000 to a million and then less than 250,000. And both of those categories all rose from 2014 to 2018. In fact, the 250 to a million, they had a massive increase from 17 to 18. Like it was like a dollar and a half. Wow. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but... It's quite a bit because they came down and now they're back up. I think that what those companies have to do because they have less money to go around, they have to be much more strategic and creative and intelligent with how they're doing all this fundraising. And clearly it's working uh, because they're getting more bang for their buck. Awesome. Let's, I guess, quickly talk about the Opera America's COVID-19 impact on 2020. Okay. And the more about the programmatic innovation, because we mentioned that. So 2020, because of COVID, 1,800 performances were canceled. If you want to take the bigger numbers, so in the United States, about 2.5 thousand performances are done every year over the past five years. That's that really only leaves, you know, uh, I don't know, 10 10 percent mm-hmm. were were left uncanceled. Yeah, and obviously the impact that has not only on the companies but the artists, and we we're all aware of this. But the innovation that they they did to keep people working and keep opera alive during the pandemic formats of programming offered were filmed productions outdoor performances live streams they say other i don't know what they're calling other but um film production made up 37 percent outdoor performances made up 26 and live streams made up 24 percent i'm and i am glad that they made a distinction between film productions and live streams because they are different film production can have stops and starts and things like that whereas a, a live stream is is a live performance they're just streaming it yeah the type of programming offered via these formats recitals and concerts fully staged operas interviews and lectures abridged semi-staged operas um, activities for families and children so recitals and concert programs made up 45 percent of the programming fully staged operas was 13 abridged semi-staged operas was 12 oh no wait 
uh, the colors. No, no. Interviews and lectures was 12 and then abridged was 10%. Okay. Opera only made up 23% of like full opera, semi-staged opera only made up 23% of programming offered. And that really makes a lot of sense because of the number of people that are involved in making an opera and how COVID made that difficult. I'm really not surprised to see that it was mostly recitals and concerts. Yeah, I'm actually kind of surprised that the interviews and all that stuff wasn't higher. Most Just because I, I think it would have been a really great opportunity. And maybe it's an opportunity missed or maybe it's just in the works. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, to just explain to people, you know, more about the industry and about projects that are coming up. Okay, so I guess we can move on to our definition stage. What do we consider dying? What do we want to do? Merriam-Webster? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we all know what dying, like something that's dying is. I think it's something that is either on the outs or just not being done anymore. And I think that also you could make a case that the word dying, especially in this case, it's not a medical definition, mm-hmm is relative. Yeah, drawing to an end or declining. I would submit that I don't think it is, and that's not just me being biased. I think it's going through a reformation. And it's one of those things that there's a lot of dust being thrown up as we're trying to figure this all out. And eventually when that settles, hopefully that dying argument will actually die you know. Yeah, and and we talked a couple days ago when I, I brought up the idea of talking about Opera as a dead language, like this idea that people want to say that it's dying, you have to meet kind of three categories when it comes to a dead language. There's no native speakers, Mm -hmm. there's no new words, and it's purely academic ceremonial or historical, which I actually don't think that opera checks any of those boxes. Yeah. There are plenty of people who perform opera and listen to opera enough so that there are plenty of people you could consider native speakers of opera, (laughs) right? Um, There are hundreds of new works. We were just talking about uh, Opera America has this uh, database, North American uh, works, and um, we were just looking at it. And in the last 10 years, over 200 new operas have been written and performed. And That's just amazing. And it's not a purely academic, ceremonial, or historic thing. Now, there are productions that are historic. There are opera companies that are very like, we do it exactly the way it's written in the score. And we're going to make the costumes exactly the way they were in the very first production. And that's fine. There's a place for that. There, There is an appreciation of that, actually, in its uh, preservation of that, that amount of history. But yeah, I mean, I can think of plenty of plenty of productions that are not academic. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them, I've heard. Um, so yeah, that's really of those three arguments with the the dead language that might have a little bit of weight, but that's only for certain kinds of people. I I completely agree. This idea that it's dying. I mean, some of the most produced shows we we see all the time mm-hmm. as one like we've mentioned a mall and the night yeah. visitors as as we were talking about before we started this a mall was one of the first operas to ever be put on tv yep on uh, things been around forever on in 
on NBC in like 1967, really kind of revitalized or, you know, brought opera to the masses in a way that hadn't been done in, if you want to consider, you know, anything after 1910, the modern era in the United States. Yeah, there's lots of operas that are based on things that we already know, either like movies or their tunes that we know. Mm Mm-hmm. For example, Dead Man Walking was a movie first with Sean Penn, right. Porgy and Bess. Everybody knows the the tune "Summertime." That most people don't know that 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 comes from an opera. Yeah, it's not just Miles Davis or Louis Armstrong or Ella. Mm-hmm. As as awesome as those people are, yeah. it, it came from an opera. Lots of people have seen the Sweeney Todd version with Brent. Johnny Depp. Oh right, 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 right. right. So mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say Brent Turfle. I was like, yeah, Brent Turfle, awesome. Yeah, well, he's great in it too, but doesn't have as wide of a reach as Johnny Depp does. Yeah, yeah, sure. There's this is a really, really cool list on here. So, and there's lots of companies that are doing it. Some that are some of them. That's like all that they do. Like we've talked about before, the Pacific Opera Project. Another really cool one that's in New York is Heartbeat Opera. Mm-hmm. They they do modern versions of stuff, but they also have new works too. Yeah, there's there's uh, something like between 40 and 50 new opera productions every year, right? Is that what that statistic was? Yeah, North North American productions by oh, you're premieres. talking premieres. Yeah, yeah, premieres. It if you were to average this all out, yeah, it's like upper 40s, low 50s. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And uh, nobody talks about that. But you know what? That's why we are right now. Yeah, um, definitely. And, and kind of going uh, before we really get into like the whole pop culture thing, because we will get into that. I wanted to talk about two things. There was a, a 1A. Uh, 1A is part of uh, it's a, show, a podcast on NPR. They did a um, interview with Anthony Davis, the composer of uh, Malcolm X and the Central Park Five. Janae Bridges and Mark Sorka, the CEO of uh, Opera America. And this quote from, he said, and and this was because the interviewer asked, like, is there a difference between uh, American and European views on uh, opera? And he was like, you know, in Europe, French, German, and Italian repertoire are a part of their cultural patrimony. And in the United States, it, is an imported art form. So as a result of it not being part of our cultural patrimony, opera in the United States has greater latitude to invent and reinvent. So there are more new works being performed in the U.S. than anywhere else in the world. And we are free to create a new form of opera, an American opera, because it's not part of our cultural inheritance. And I mean, that was just, it was so perfect because it's true. Like, we didn't, you know, when opera began, we didn't have, or even the U.S., I meant when the U.S. was formed, we didn't have any sort of operas being composed in the United States. I think the first American opera wasn't composed until the 1800s. Um, and partly that was because opera was banned in the in the colonies and in the the United States for like the first, I don't know, like 30 to 40 years or something. And then like the first Mm -hmm. true opera season didn't occur until like 1825. And that was when Manuel Garcia and his, uh, his opera troupe came over and presented opera in New York and kind of sent a craze through the societies there because they hadn't had access to that sort of thing. 
and just kind of the legacy that yeah uh, american opera is different and will always be different because we we yeah we don't have to be so tied to canon pieces by verdi and mozart and wagner and all of that we we can say well we have our own canon and we have our own tradition and one of those traditions is this massive output of new opera Mm -hmm. and i i think that it just goes into the whole idea of what as we were told as kids at least i assume you were too that america is a melting pot Mm -hmm. and so if we look at operas like, yeah, I mean, there are probably some people who might want to create, quote unquote, patriotic operas, but we can take the best of all the cultures that are coming to our country mm-hmm. and then put that into our operas and make them more relatable. Because again, it's a language, or at least it's perceived that it's a language that people won't understand. Well, that's how we get around it. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that was a really great quote really uh hit it on the nail yeah i mean i think it was the the best way to to state how the environment of opera in the u.s is is very different from europe from a cultural standpoint and from a budgetary standpoint too because in in germany like the the government supports the productions i think it's like it's between 40 and 60 percent of the money comes from the government um and i think it it is similar in italy as well whereas like in the united states most of the money comes from fundraising from donors you know only like it's usually only around like 30 percent actually comes from tickets being sold and then the rest is filled in by grants and Mm -hmm. stuff Okay, so this is kind of like our segue into pop culture. I want to kind of share this article that I found via another podcast that I found a podcast that was talking about uh, opera in popular culture. And they mentioned this article and I went and, you know, was reading through it. So it's Expecting Rain, Opera as Popular Culture by John Story. And kind of the most interesting thing I found in there was about the progression of opera into high culture art, how this happened. And he really comes at it from a societal uh, standpoint and being a a musicologist, we can't just put it on society. There, there also was a movement by composers, particularly by people like uh, Wagner and Meyerbeer to, to create uh, you know, when in Wagner's, it was Gesamtkunstwerk, this idea that all of the arts come together and make this this very elevated art form. And, you know, uh, Meyerbeer was doing grand opera and, and kind of all the composers kind of started to follow suit for a while. In the article, he talks about how between 1825 and 1850s, uh, elite social groups in New York in particular, because uh, even today, New York is kind of the the center of opera in in the United States. There's uh, something like 40% of the opera companies are, are based in New York. It's a lot. But they developed three overlapping strategies to separate opera from the everyday world of popular entertainment. And the first was to separate it from any other theater by establishing a building specifically for performing opera. The second was to make a code of behavior, including dress code, that was deemed proper for attending the opera. And then finally, they insisted on only foreign languages being presented 
as the standard of excellence. You know, of course, this is going to alienate everyday people. If you make it harder to get to the building, harder to get into the building, and harder to understand what's on stage, are you going to want to go? Nope. And if you're an elitist, it worked like a charm. And I and I think that this is where most people get the idea that opera is elitist and where, you know, you have to dress a certain way to go to the opera. You have to have um, an understanding of foreign languages to go to the opera. And that opera is only at an opera house, which today is just f- very far from the truth. I mean, you, you know, uh, we have organizations that sing operas in bars, that you know, sing opera. I mean, opera happens on cruise ships now. <laughs> I don't really consider cruises high class. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they're, they're really nice ones, yeah. but um, they're, <laughs> they're pretty affordable for the average person if you budget. Yeah. Anyways, opera is is available outside of the opera house and has been for a really long time. That's not it's not a new idea that opera is only in the opera house. What's so interesting too that a lot of people don't realize is often how much they actually don't notice that it's actually there, right? We've talked about commercials and and how it's in movies and everybody knows that if you need a structured settlement and you need cash now, because of opera, you know you call J.G. Wentworth. Wentworth. We all know this. <laughs> 877 Cash Now. But also, even stuff like if you go on to Spotify, you know, I was going to the gym the other day looking for a, a playlist, and there was one that I found called Pop Songs Based on Classical Music. Mm. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. So I go in there, and they'll give you the pop song, and then the next track is the uh, classical piece that it was based off of. Cool. They're doing some of the legwork for us. Now, granted, they're not all opera, but yeah. the idea that classical music is like only for snooty rich people. Mm-hmm. I mean, how often do we just like stop and listen to classical music when it's in a place that we're not expecting it? Like uh, malls. Like you can even like think about uh, carolers at Christmas. Yep. That's generally speaking not pop music. There are like. Right. You know, yeah, because they, they they're supposed to pay also. for those royalties. <laughs> well, yeah, well, there is that, but I'm just saying, like, people do often just stop and listen to these quartets that are being sung, and musically speaking, they shouldn't. If we go off of what we're told is popular in the United States, it'd be like, oh, that's just a bunch of weirdos over there, yeah, singing. Christmas songs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dressed in funky attire. It, it is kind of like funny, like the places that opera in particular pops up, you know. Yeah. Like we talked about with ads in particular, Lachme's duet. And you hear that all the time in ads and you hear, I, I don't think you hear Ride of the Valkyries that much. Oh yeah. You hear Carmen all the time in ads, the, the Habanera in particular. That one's always used. I don't, they never use it, the Sega which I prefer. Yeah. <laughs> And then, I, I don't know, is Sesame Street still popular? Sort of. Because, like, I mean, opera was my, opera was on that a lot when we were growing up. In movies in general. I mean, I haven't, I'll admit, I don't watch a lot of movies. So I haven't seen many movies in the last five years. So I don't know if there is, like, what movies have used opera in the last five years. I mean, I can, you know, always talk about, like the apocalypse now and the ride of the valkyries and moonstruck and pretty woman uh, shawshank redemption those all have opera in them 
yeah. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. It's honestly, it's mostly like all the stuff I know is from when I was growing up and watching more movies. So I'm not really, yeah. I'm not hip with what's going on right now. <laughs> You're not hip to be squared. Yeah. Or whatever the saying is. <laughs> But things that are a part of popular culture, hip hop and rap music are the most popular music right now. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm sure that there's been some sampling done. I don't know any of that. If any of our listeners are, are hip hop heads and and know of hip hop songs that have op- operatic samples on them, send us a comment or whatever with what they are. We'd love to know. Yeah, exactly. And then, like, musicals that are inspired by opera, a couple on the list. Rent, that's inspired by La Boheme. Miss Saigon is inspired by Madame Butterfly. And Aida is inspired by Aida. (laughs) Yeah. And just in case we we haven't mentioned it before, Phantom of the Opera is not an opera. Just because it takes place in an opera house doesn't make it an opera. Just like, you know... Sweeney Todd is not a piece about the meat pie business, okay? (laughs) Yeah. Just because it takes place in a meat pie shop. Yeah, other places where opera shows up in popular culture, uh, my boyfriend mentioned uh, home movies had like a rock opera thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, And then we have like all of these opera pop artists, as I'll I'll call them, Josh Groban, Il Devo, Il Volo, uh Bocelli, Sarah Brightman, Katherine Jenkins. These these are pretty popular. I mean, they're they're all millionaires. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's something to be said there. Yeah, they're they're obviously cashing in some money that that we're not. And then you know, I guess we have to talk about the Met in HD. Yeah, because that that made opera available to people outside of the opera house and a movie theater. You can go watch in a movie theater. Well, I mean, you can maybe make the argument that that was the gateway drug to opera being more in homes between that and youtube i would say yeah i uh yeah because if you have the accessibility issue because you don't live near new york Mm -hmm. you go to a a movie theater that's good enough for most people and again they're not worried about what they're going to wear because it's obviously not the same Mm -hmm. but you know if they can get it now in their house um yeah, or via iTunes. I I don't remember where I read this statistic, but like twelve percent of all iTunes sales um, were like from classical music. So mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot. Twelve percent. Yeah. And then the last thing is, as we're talking about opera in pop culture or pop culture and opera, you can kind of turn it on its head too. I know this is like fifty years ago, but Tommy the Who, their rock opera, which if you haven't seen the film amazing um, <laughs> yeah that's really good pinball wizard can't go wrong or mm. tina turner as the the acid queen also can't go wrong <laughs> <laughs> that's right but very cool fact seattle opera premiered it on their stage in 1971 and bet midler was the acid queen oh really i didn't know that yeah interesting i wonder how long it took him to be like yeah we're just gonna go with the ring cycle we're not gonna be uh <laughs> Famous for this rock opera. Yeah, I wonder, was Spate Jenkins part of the company at that time? I don't think he was. I think that was before his time. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he would have approved. He's still alive. He could tell us. That's true. Anyways, 
so if we talk about like pop culture influencing opera, I mean, there's a Steve Jobs opera. Mm-hmm. I would say that's definitely informing what people are interested in. And there's The Shining, The Handmaiden's Tale. What other ones can I think of? Uh, well, yeah, there's just there's so many. There was one that was a Tinder opera. Oh yeah, there's, I forgot about that one. Mm-hmm. There was one. I don't know if it actually got produced. That was like a Breaking Bad opera. Right. You know, there's all kinds of stuff now, really in the last 10 years, not so much prior to that, where people are like, you know what, screw it, I'm just going to do whatever. And so they uh, are taking really big chances with stuff that's in our culture, even if it's really hot button topic. You mentioned the Central Park Five. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, there, another, I mean, there's another 2020 was at 2019 slash 2020 was actually a really good year for composition there. There were a ton of new works and particularly new works by women composers that were performed mm-hmm. in 2020. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that composers I have learned from the new operas that I have seen is that the whole idea of, you know what? I'm going to be an opera composer and I'm going to make this music so mathematical or so music theory based Mm -hmm. instead of actually being listenable, you know, singable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those people went out the window (laughs) and they're now writing stuff that people actually want to perform. Yeah, thank God. You know, on an academic level, I can appreciate atonal music. Yeah, that's as far as it goes for me. And even then, that's pushing it. Yeah. Yeah, to sing some, I mean, I've, I've sung some atonal work, and it's hard. It is so hard. Way harder mm-hmm. than it needs to be. <laughs> and and thank goodness oh, totally. that there are people, that there are singers that can, that really specialize in that sort of thing. And yeah, I'm glad that they, they specialize it, so I don't have to. And they yeah, make it sound great. That's true because they work so hard. And, and what's interesting, if you are one of those specialists and those shows keep coming up, it's weird how fast those things get back into my brain mm-hmm. or back into your brain. I remember I did a show with in the Northwest Opera. It was this outreach show, and like it was super atonal, but it was supposed to be performed for kids, and it's mm. about this toy maker and all this stuff. You would think it'd be all happy go lucky music, yeah. other than you know the the moments in the show where it's dramatically not smart to do that uh-huh. but i got called to do it really last minute and i as soon as i got the call i was like well shit this took me forever to get in my brain i only have because they i had to replace somebody mm-hmm. i only had a few rehearsals before but if you actually do that music it comes back pretty quick and then it for some reason makes sense to you yeah i don't know if it made sense to everybody else but yeah Oh, yeah. Also, the band Cake has a song about an opera singer. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. It's a good song. You know, going back to this this like definition of opera being compared to like a dead language and and particularly the, the, the language itself is dying. Um, I think the, the vast number of compositions and new productions that are being done by companies in the U.S. is is grounds to say that no i mean opera is not dying and it, it's still persisting and and being relevant in pop culture you know maybe it's not the element of pop culture and that's fine attention spans are <laughs> it's so in short supply easy to get distracted these days oh my gosh especially with things like tiktok yeah i don't want to admit i don't have tiktok <laughs> um 
I do get on Instagram reels sometimes and I spend more time than I probably should on there. <laughs> I've done that too. It's just, it's kind of fun. I find it, I, I think it, it could be really interesting for someone to write like a, a little opera series on something like TikTok, like actually write an opera for that, not just do opera on it. I think it could be really interesting. Yeah, that would be. Yeah. In our minds, opera is not dying yet. No, definitely not. I think it's uh it's like a a phoenix that's about to rise. Yeah. Or you can maybe relate it to Bitcoin earlier this <laughs> last year. Yeah. I mean Bitcoin was kind of noodling and mm-hmm. then it just took off. Yeah. Right? It, you know, I, I think that moving forward, opera once it kind of consolidates after the pandemic, which probably with certain companies this is already starting to happen. It in terms of the organizational aspect of it and the vision. And now they just need to implement that vision as things open up completely. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's going to definitely get better over time, especially if companies look to their younger employees and singers. And this isn't an ageist thing. I'm not saying that older folks don't have good ideas but if you're looking at how to use technology and how people use it in their everyday lives i'm sorry someone who's over 50 doesn't probably know as much as a person who's 20 and has had you know facebook there and also to figure out what what is trending like i mean i'm sorry i'm not afraid to admit you know i'm 32 and and i don't know what's trending i might have like a few ideas but overall like I don't know what's fashionable. I don't know if my partner hadn't told me that hip hop and rap is the most popular music in the world. I wouldn't have known. I would have thought it was just pop music. Yeah. I I just, um, I've never really been concerned with what's trending in my life. It's just never been something that I cared about. So I'm not the person to necessarily ask about those sort of things because I just get interested in what I'm interested in and I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think definitely paying attention to uh, your younger audience members or people who work at your company. Yeah. Getting their input. This this is an area, you know, maybe they don't have the experience in a lot of other ways, but this is the thing that they have the knowledge about and and we need to value that and learn from that and build on that. Yeah. I agree. Okay, so I think that's going to wrap up our episode for today and for this season. Looking forward, we are definitely do some we, we didn't do any interviews in this first season and, you know, uh we had kind of talked about it, but, you know, with the pandemic, it kind of made it hard. I mean, Mike and I do do our uh, recording in separate places, but, um, you know, not everybody has the same setup that we do and is as tech savvy. So we didn't want to, like, worry about it. And we had plenty of content to present to you um, throughout mm-hmm. this first season to fill things up. So we're definitely going to have some interviews next season. And, um, you know, we've already talked about trying to put a production together. So I got to get rolling on that. Yeah, definitely. So uh, thanks so much for everybody checking us out, telling all your friends, helping us grow this thing. Yeah. We're excited for all the things coming up. But uh, I, I just have to mention, it's it's insane to me that in one year, we went from zero Instagram followers and we're almost at a thousand. Yeah. We're only like. 10 away so i guess 
We'll have to figure out something to do for our thousands of followers. So if you guys want something cool and extra, tell some more friends. (laughs) You know, just say, hey. Listen to this podcast. It doesn't even have to be this one that we're talking about. Maybe it's a different one that you like. I'm like, hey, tag a friend or whatever, and then they can like it, you know? Yep. And then we can put something together because we are really, really close. And honestly, that's exploded over the last two or three months. Yeah, it's just insane. Um, I mean, I I don't think either of us really expected it to kind of take off the way it did, but we're glad that people are enjoying our content and we don't do this to make money. I mean, money's nice to have. But we do this because we enjoy it. Yeah. If you want to throw a few bucks our way, we're more than welcome to take it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we won't turn that down. That's that's for sure. And we are always open to your suggestions and requests when it comes to content. So let us know what you... what If there's something we haven't talked about and you're like, why haven't they talked about this? Mm-hmm. We're only two people. We only have two minds. Like we said, they get easily yeah. distracted. So <laughs> Wait, what are we doing? Yeah, exactly. thanks for listening to this podcast episode we hope you enjoyed it we'd love to hear your thoughts and requests so leave us a comment below for more information about the podcast or for extras check out our patreon page www.patreon.com slash opera unbound you can help support the creation of this and much more content for as little as three dollars a month like and subscribe to our channel and also follow us on instagram at opera unbound to stay updated ciao